1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Sound Medicine Podcast. I'm Barbara Lewis, and this is episode number 11.
2: I could give somebody bad news. You know, I I have this job that most people in the world think is crazy. I tell people on a regular basis their child is going to die. And yet I can find positives in that.
1: Really? Is there a good way to deliver bad news? My guest today says there is.
2: The challenges physicians feel in delivering bad news is this struggle of balancing hope. They don't want to dash people's hope. And at the same time, they don't want to lie or give false hope.
1: Dr. Nadia Tremonti is a pediatric palliative care specialist, which means she helps make sure children undergoing treatment in the hospital suffer as little pain as possible. Dr. Tremonti works and teaches at the Children's Hospital of Michigan in Detroit. We learned about her work in the field of breaking bad news from the parent of one of her young patients, a blue-eyed, curly-haired two-year-old named Martin. Here's his mom, journalist Amy (laughs) Hushka.
3: started out as a, you know, a, a normal child, developing three, four months, and then I started noticing some things. You know, he didn't tolerate tummy time, or he wasn't grasping onto things. He certainly was reaching for things, but he wasn't grasping onto them, and he was communicating with us, but it wasn't quite the same.
1: After shrugging it off for a while, their pediatrician sent them to Children's Hospital, where the neurology team performed an MRI.
3: You could tell when they brought him back. The team wasn't looking at making direct eye contact with us at that point. And so we, you know, it was like midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and we knew something was wrong. The neurology team, they were just kind of like, this is what's going on. And then they just kind of left us there to be devastated. But the next day, we woke up with him and different sets of teams were coming in. And each of the teams kept saying to us, you need to meet Dr. Nadia Tremonti. She works here at Children's and she does palliative care. And we think that she would be very interested in Martin's case. She sat us down and she basically said, your son's gonna die and you're gonna outlive your son. And obviously that was um, pretty hard news to hear, you know? It was um, pretty devastating because when you have a child, you don't think that that's gonna happen. You know, you expect your kids to live on after, long after you're gone and, and, uh, you know, Although she was very blunt, she was um, caring. You know, she sat with us for three hours, held our hand, cried with us,
2: answered all our questions. It's funny the things you remember. I think I could tell you exactly what room they
1: were in in the hospital. Again, Dr. Nadia Tremonti. You
2: know, I remember a little bit about Martin in his crib because they had brought in one of the play mats, and so that was in his crib. I don't remember all the specifics of where we were in the room. Um, it's pretty common that I would sit down with families and get you know, quite close, like she's saying. I do remember a lot of the time that I met with them actually standing over the crib and looking at Martin and interacting with Martin while we're talking as well.
1: Have you had a lot of these conversations?
2: Yes, absolutely. Every day? Um, pretty much.
1: How do you prepare for them, Dr. Sramonte?
2: I review the charts and try and go in with some knowledge of what the families have been through, what you know has gone on, what the thinking is of the physicians that are around. And I have a policy that I always kind of take a moment before I go into a room to make sure that there are things that I'm gonna say that are positive. I think one of the errors that we make when delivering bad news um, with families is all we have to give them is bad news. That, you know, this tragedy is here, you're in a terrible situation, it's never gonna get better, you're about to confront your biggest fears. And, and then we leave people hanging with no idea of, well, what can we do positive? And I you know, always try and take that extra moment to, how can I make something good of this interaction? And that may seem crazy, <laughs> um, but um, I guess my approach and my years of experience, I, I find abilities to, to find some positives. I think oftentimes um, physicians start with the news. Instead, whenever I uh, start a family meeting, first of all, I, you know, obviously you have to do things like introductions, make sure you call people by the right names, make sure you talk about the patient by their name. We'll kind of set an agenda to make sure that we're both aware of what the plan is. Um, sometimes doctors just come in and start talking and don't say, the reason we're meeting today is because I have to tell you the results of the test or I, I have to share with you some bad news or we're going to have a hard conversation today. Sometimes people don't know that and patients may be expecting something very different that you're coming in with a different thing in mind and so I think it's always good to check like what is the intent of the meeting right now when I meet families I ask them to share their story of what's led us to this moment in time and I do very often my my initial meetings with families often are one two sometimes three hours long and I spend a lot of time first getting to know what families know what's important to them before I get into. Let's talk about what we found out. And I think one error that physicians often make is they walk into a room, they just start telling them this is the situation, this is where we're at, and at the end we'll be like, do you have any questions? The doctor is already in a position of power, of authority. Um, We tend to use language, even the best of us with the best of intentions, use language that can be very confusing for families. And their heads are spinning, and then you ask them, do you have questions? And nine times out of ten, they'll say no, but often they haven't understood half of what you've said. They're intimidated and scared by the language, and and then you, you know, physicians walk out feeling I told them what they needed to know without realizing. And so, again, I kind of start with, like, what do you know, trying to identify, you know, areas that that where families think are important. it may be areas of correction of, like, well, we we heard things are going good or he's doing so much better, and I might say, you know, some things have gotten better, but but there are other things we're worried about. Um, Or the families themselves might say, we're freaking out. We think you're about to tell us really bad things, and and I can adjust what I'm saying to them. That's, to me, a big problem that I see when, when we have these family meetings where we're telling parents tragic things that we don't first feel out where they're at and how ready they are for this information or how they would like that information told to them.
1: Amy had a a horrible story of a number of interactions before she got to you. Mm -hmm. How often does that happen where um, things didn't go well until they finally came to you and, and you, like you said, you ask them questions and you adjust? Often.
2: Part of the challenge is timing, and a lot of these these things, families are in shock. And so I always have to struggle because I, I do have frustrations that I hear stories from families about things being told to them in non-compassionate ways or bad experiences with prior physicians. And part of my core is, you know, what did those doctors do wrong? And I I tend to get very protective, but then I do have to stay in check that these things unfold over time. I don't have the, the benefit often of being at those very first meetings because I'm a consultant. So typically once I'm involved, things have happened and I don't get to see what those first interactions were like. Um, I trust that some doctors do try very hard to do this well, but receiving bad news is is sad and scary. But I I do think that we fail sometimes to, to get to know people before we tell them these things. But sometimes there may not be time. When I do consults, one of the biggest problems I see is breakdowns in communication, families being told multiple things from multiple providers, often conflicting information, often very differing levels of hope. So one doctor who's come in very positive, the next doctor coming in very negative, one doctor coming in just straight to the point, another doctor coming in very gently, and families getting very confused in what's happening and how to read the situation.
1: It sounds like that would be hard to rectify.
2: It is a challenge. I think in our healthcare system right now, the way that it's built, particularly in the hospital systems, families encounter so many different physicians and other providers, nurses, PCAs, each one of these people come in with an emotional overtone. They're bringing in their own faith. This kid's going to get better. This kid's going to get worse. Oh, no, I saw a kid just like this a week ago, and I feel so bad for the family. Somebody else might never have seen anything before. You know, We have multiple levels of trainees. You know, I work in an academic institution, and a lot of times with higher-level illness, um, people are being referred to academic centers. So you have the medical student, the intern, the resident, each one of these people is not only asking questions of the family, but the family naturally is asking those people questions and they're getting answers maybe from people who are not very experienced talking like this. Then you have you know, multiple different senior doctors who are coming in, but maybe different consultants. And nowadays also in the hospital, even the physicians themselves are changing often once a week. So there's this constant Flux of physicians, and and here these families are reeling in these very scary places and don't really have a stable foundation of who's in charge. And just when they might find a doctor that they like, that doctor may be off service the next day and they're interfacing with a new doctor who uses totally different language and has different approaches.
1: Now, Amy and Robert Hushka are big soccer fans, and they've been given the chance to attend a tournament in Ireland, but they ask themselves, how could they leave Martin?
2: I think they had asked several people, you know, should we take it? And a lot of people were like, how on earth Like, would you even be considering this here in the midst of this tragedy? And and they asked me, um, and I was like, go. It's just amazing. Go. Make memories. I, I, you know, I think... It, does Martin have problems? Yes, I think right now he's relatively stable. I think I, I, I'm confident that you have time to make this trip. The whole reason we're here is to make good memories. And I was like, go, go, go. The sense of relief, they're like, oh, you're our people. Everybody else is say, don't take this risk. And you're like, this isn't a risk. The risk is staying home and, and getting yourself bogged down in the tragedy of this. Bring Martin into your world. Start having him be part of all your positive stories. She just said,
3: You know, you've got to live life. You know, he's not going to be here that long. You know, and we even asked her because we had planned to go to Ireland. We were going to leave him at home with Grandma. And she said, take him. She says, do it. She says, live life. She gave us permission to live life.
1: We're going to take a break. And when we come back, you'll want to hear Dr. Tremonti's answer to the question that she gets a lot. How do you do this work?
0: hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
1: welcome back to the sound medicine podcast i'm barbara lewis and i'm speaking today with dr nadia tremonti she specializes in the gut-wrenching work of helping parents understand that their child is going to die.
2: I think that most people in my field in palliative care have some inherent interests in communication. A lot of us are you know, more of the liberal arts background people. Many people have had prior personal experiences, but to be very honest, I have not. I look at my life course, it's all been very serendipitous, and it all makes sense at this point, but I wouldn't say it made sense throughout my life. I think these things are things that were in me from childhood. My mother was a guidance counselor and so we were pretty open with feelings and she was also I would say a very accepting person of people from all different walks of life and we were exposed to a lot of things growing up. I have a perhaps interesting religious background. I was actually raised atheist and I um you know in adolescence kind of identified that the whole rest of the world had this religion thing that I did not have. And so when I was looking into medicine and I wanted to be a doctor, I had a preconceived notion that when you're caring for people who are sick, they're scared and they're gonna turn to God and I knew nothing about that. And so when I went to college whilst I majored in, you know, biomedical sciences and all the things that you're supposed to do for pre med, I had a secondary major in comparative religion you know, I had minors in psychology, philosophy, so I I was looking at things from a, a different angle, and I I really always had this belief that to take care of humans, you have to kind of understand what guides them and their values, and religion was a big part of it.
1: And have you found that aspect very, very helpful, sometimes more than the pre-med courses? These two residents
2: are sitting with me right now. We were just talking about this yesterday. I, I think my background with having studied religion and being open to talk about it and being comfortable Um, talking with people at different faiths and understanding their faith systems and how it shapes people. It's every single day. Nowadays, as as we come to bigger decisions, um, medical decisions about what course of treatment we're going to make, physicians, when we're counseling families, are often talking about statistics. We're talking about side effects. We're talking about risk-benefit of surgery in, in very concrete, objective ways. And what I have learned in my work in you know, most of the questions I'm working with are real life and death questions. The vast majority of these decisions are made by families based on faith and hope. So if doctors are sitting here putting families in these, these situations to make decisions and we're giving them all this data thinking that that's what they're using and at the end of the day they're actually using their faith system and their like, gut feelings and their hope and we spend no time actually discussing that part. And so the, the biggest driver of decision making from a patient perspective is the one thing that doctors are talking about. And instead the biggest drivers of decision making that physicians make is this data-driven information, but increasingly doctors are looking to families to make decisions and families want to make the decisions themselves. And so we're using two different systems.
1: Can you give me an example of how you do that?
2: When I do my consults, I always ask families first to start with their story. I'm a pediatrician, so I actually often encourage people to start their story even before the child was born or conceived, like tell me a little bit about the mom and dad, your relationship, your other kids, I kind of make this joke, you know, when you got pregnant, was this like a hooray or was this an oops pregnancy? And I tell families, I don't just want to know about what medical thing happened, when, what medicine, what surgery, what day. I want you to tell me what you think are the important things that happened. That's very telling because families will share things very differently than what the medical chart reads. And I'll often tell families, I've reviewed the medical chart, I can read the medical chart, I can find these dates, but your child is not his chart. A lot of my interview questions, especially with people with longer illness, I might ask more questions, as an example, you know, somewhere along the course of this patient's life, maybe they had a surgery like to put a feeding tube in, and I might ask, so when you made the decision to go forward at that time, what were you thinking were the goods and the bads? What were the discussions like? What helped you make those decisions? Or you know, how did you feel going in? A lot of times when families tell me about when they were first diagnosed or first got some bad news, I might say, you know, when you got that news, did you get an impression that the doctors were very optimistic, like this is something that's going to get better, we have treatments, or right away, did you have a sense this is really bad? So I'm looking at things less just tell me what happened, but like what your approach was and a little bit more that emotional backing. And that kind of guides me a little because our values tend not to change over time, whereas the situation may. And so if somebody says, oh, the reason I made this decision six months ago was because I prayed on it and this is what God told me to do, well, then I recognize later on, well, as this new decision is coming forward, I'm going to have to involve that prayer. Or they may say, you know, I went and spoke to my grandma because she's always the person that guides me, and I might be like, okay, well, maybe next time we meet we have to have your grandma there. I take a lot of time in those things and some of the big areas that I focus on are, you know, describe to me what a good day is for this patient and how is that changing over time and what's a bad day and how is that changing. I might ask you, you know, are you seeing more good days, more bad days? And I let them tell me how they see it as opposed to me, you know, saying, you know, are they able to button their clothes or are they able to perform their activities of daily living? For me, it's, you know, are they able to enjoy things and how do they enjoy things? And a lot of times when I ask about pain, because pain is very subjective, I may also ask about, like, do you think they're suffering? And it's sometimes very surprising, so some families will be very concerned about their children suffering. Um, Recently, I had a family of a baby who's in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, for months, and I would have perceived this child as suffering quite a bit. Almost every time I've seen the child, she's kind of fussy and crying and gets pain medicine. But when I asked the mother if she thought the child was suffering she said she didn't think so that she thought that this is the only life this baby has known and so she's gotten used to it and she says you know I think that some of the things we do hurt her but we have pain medicine for it so that the pain is controlled and really was not perceiving suffering the way that I was but I let them share that first because I think that's very important for me going forward when I'm talking with people and then as I move forward when I talk about you know doctors talk about social history and you know, the classics of social history, you know, who do you live with? Do you have smoke detectors, as pediatricians want to know? Do you have, you know, pets and car seats and other guns? But I tend to ask more, you know, who are your main support systems? Who do you look to when you're having problems? More and more I've started asking people, you know, are you private people or are you more public? Like, are you sharing on Facebook and starting up a, a GoFundMe page and letting everybody know what's going on? When I ask spiritual history, more than, you know, I ask people, you know, what is your religion? But then I go forward and ask, you know, is that something that's important to you? Um, how does it give you strength? My very classic way of determining people's spiritual views is more than just what your religion is. I, I say that all religions try to answer the really hard questions that we don't have answers for. And to me, those questions are, why are we here? Where do we go when we die? And why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? And then I Ask families, so when you look at the situation, you know, why do you think this is happening? And that, to me, is very telling. It offers opportunities because some people, especially with babies, they might say, oh, my gosh, I'm worried that, you know, I drank two glasses of wine when I was three months pregnant or, you know, I, I fell down the stairs at this point. And, and that might be opportunities to address those feelings of guilt. And, and very often we can say with certainty this has nothing to do with those two glasses of wine, or this was nothing about a trauma, this was something totally different. So sometimes people are carrying with them a lot of guilt that's clouding the decision-making, and, and I can address those things. Do you
1: think this can be taught?
2: So this is an interesting question. I give lectures on breaking bad news, and part of like the slides that I show is, is can you teach Communication. Can you teach compassion? I, increasingly, can you teach cultural competence—that ability to connect to people? I have concerns. I think that there are parts of this you can't teach. There are things that are inherent to us. There, you know, there are people who grow up and they're going to be extra good at sports. There are people who grow up and they're going to be extra good at using their hands. And there are going to people who grow up that are extra good at social intelligence, talking, communicating. So I do think. That that it would be foolish to say that this is can be 100% taught and that it's also foolish to say that everybody can be good at this or an expert at this. On the other hand, I do think that there are skills to be taught, you know. and I, I do feel empowered when I'm giving people lectures. I think I'm going to succeed. I think that the people I teach are going to be better at communicating afterwards. Part of it is just like we talked about earlier, some of the practicalities of how you run a family meeting, how you set it up, how you... You know, you set an agenda, you prepare people for what you say, you make goals at the end, you provide feedback and plans for follow-up. I think a lot of the challenges physicians feel in delivering bad news is this struggle of balancing hope. They don't want to dash people's hope. And at the same time, they don't want to lie or give false hope. And I think physicians really struggle in the middle of this. And I think the main reasons it's a struggle is because physicians – have often defined hope as hoping for health, hoping for a cure, hoping to not die. And we kind of go into these conversations when we're going to maybe tell somebody, you have a terminal disease, you're going to die. We go in with an idea, well, then there's no hope that if what we're being graded on, if what our outcome measure is, can we make you healthy again? And we've decided we can't. And we go in already with a sense of failure and a sense of hopelessness. And then we have this great sense of burden, but we can't dash their hopes. And so we struggle in this place. And I try and teach people that there are many, many other things people hope for. I can give somebody bad news. You know, I I have this job that most people in the world think is crazy. I tell people on a regular basis their child is going to die. And yet I can find positives in that.
1: As for Martin, he is cared for at home. He's been on hospice care for about a year and a half. Dr. Tremonti is talking with Amy and Robert about withdrawing those daily hospice visits just to see how he would do. Looking back at the past year, Amy told me the experience has taught her a lot about how she wishes she had been spoken to by doctors other than Dr. Tremonti.
3: I've learned that you have to have a heart. You have to be human. You can't be a robot and expect the family to respond a certain way because everybody is going to be totally different. Every person that you tell the same story to, you're going to get a different reaction. You know, And so you can't treat everybody the same. And I really wish that I could go back and talk to that neurology team and be like, wake up. Don't be robots. I'm a human being. My son's a human being. My husband's a human being. Don't treat us like we're not. Don't treat us like we're just one of the numbers because we're not. I'm Amy. My husband's Robert. My son's Martin. You need to know who we are. And if you're going to deliver this bad news, you know, you need to know that we're human and we can take it. You just have to be honest with us. You can't sugarcoat it. We're going to ask more questions.
2: one of the things that gives me strength and when I'm teaching residents, often I'll start the conversation. The way that I see things is that for every single one of us sitting right here, I have no idea how we're going to die. And we can try and imagine, I don't know if I'm going to die tonight in a car accident. I don't know if I'm going to die 10 years from now in a war situation or as the result of some violence, I'm raped and murdered and and left on the streets, or if I'm gonna die at 90 years old in my bed with all my grandchildren around me holding my hand. And for many of us, because we don't know how we're gonna die and we have very little control over it, we tend not to wanna think about it. But I know that if we try and think what would we want things to look like when we die, most of us can think of things we want. And there are some common themes. Oftentimes people don't wanna be alone. Very often, most of us would like to die with a sense of peace and love, as opposed to a sense of war or violence or hate. Many people don't want to die in pain. Some people have very specific things, and like, you know, I want to die on a beach in Hawaii. When we have these ideas, what I see um, is the one person that we all know right now is, you know, your child. That because we know they're going to die, they're the one person that we actually have the opportunity to assure that they could have the best death possible. And it's a gift I can't give anybody else in this room, but I can give to your child. And so I could almost guarantee, though it may be hard for us to accept, that your child dies where she wants to be, that the last things they hear are your voice, you telling them you love them, that they'll never experience hate or violence. And there's something really beautiful about that because none of us know when we're gonna die, but at the end of our days, What's most important is that we are loved, and we got an opportunity to love, and and that's what we have the opportunity today. I go in with that feeling, like I—it sounds weird. There's a, a small, little part of me that is a little envious or jealous of these children I care for, because I know that they can die well, and I don't know that for myself, and I've. Um, I've I've seen them die well, because of the nature of my job. I think a lot of people will ask me like, well, you've seen a lot of dying. How do you want to die? You know, like am I like a you know heart attack person or a cancer person. And I uh, tell people, well, if you're going to ask me this question, like, because I, I can't control it, you ask me what I want. So that means I can be magical. And really, in my soul, what I would want, I'd want to live till I'm 100 years old, totally healthy, with everybody I love healthy. And then, magically, I would like to turn into a baby and die in my mom's arms. Because I've witnessed those deaths and, I, and, and those children die in, in absolute comfort and safety and the, the feeling they have is absolute unconditional love. And so like, if I'm gonna be magical about it, that's what I want. And then here I am, I work in a career where I get to see that happen. And so there's a positive there that you can make this really beautiful and something to aspire to And something to wish for ourselves and for the people we love. None of us wish for our children to die. But if that's coming anyway, like the fact that we may be able to have some control over it is to me very empowering and it offers a lot of hope.
1: That was Dr. Nadia Tremonti. She's medical director for the Children's Palliative Care Unit at Children's Hospital of Michigan in Detroit. And you also heard Amy Hushka's story, a journalist and a fierce mother to her son, Martin. I just want to ask, how's Martin today?
3: He's good. He, um, I'm sitting here staring at him right now. He um, is laying on the floor with his little, you know, one of those floor mats, you know, that have the things on them. And, and um, he loves that. He's doing really good today.
1: And that's it for this episode of the Sound Medicine Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please like us on Facebook. Tell your friends. They can find us at iTunes and Stitcher. And if you leave a review on iTunes, it helps other folks find us. The producer of Sound Medicine Podcast is Nora Hyatt with help from Eric Metcalf. Chris Lieber is our engineer, and we have support from the IU School of Medicine. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. In the meantime, take care.